Next on Making Sense of the Madness, two years after the George Floyd psyop began, Mariam Hanane continues to investigate and put the pieces of the puzzle together. And Dr. Syed Haider joins us to discuss the use of ivermectin for vaccine side effects. The FBI had their own little office with Clinton's lawyers, and guess who was running it? We're going to find out. We're going to question the mainstream narrative, expose media propaganda right now. I just took the position that, that may not be politically popular, may be too honest, that not only should no one be able to purchase an AR-15 or an AK-47 because they're designed to kill humans and that high impact, high velocity round will just tear up everything inside. You'll bleed out before we can get you back to life. Um, but I don't think that the people who have them right now in civilian use should be able to keep them. That was Beto Male O'Rourke, who has flip-flopped three times on the issue, but has now made it clear he wants to confiscate your guns. Well, people are finally waking up to the idea that the government itself may actually orchestrate events to set up these gun grabs from citizens. There are still so many unanswered questions about the death of George Floyd, which was used as a pretext to defund the police. Investigative journalist Miriam Hanane joins us to discuss her book and her upcoming documentary, um, so, Miriam, what did you reveal in your book that is not covered by the mainstream narrative? Well, the book is still in the works, but it unravels and deconstructs this multi-layered psyop. The mainstream media and the government purposely left a lot on the cutting room floor, aka de actual details. So I set out to, I, I've conducted a forensic investigation that's taken, real investigations take a long time, applying for FOIA, purchasing documents, uh, footage, to try to understand some of the falsehoods that they told us. And, and really what's covering up is a laundering scheme that involves the government and the Mexican cartel, specifically the Sinaloa, who is also behind this opioid epidemic, this fentanyl, this fake fentanyl, and if anyone really cared about this black man's life, we would be looking at the source of the fake cash and the source of the fake pills. Absolutely. So can you explain to us some of the lies that were told? Yes. Will we show the, the trailer and then we can pivot off of that? Or would you like me to just... Sure. Yeah. Let, let's show this is the trailer for Miriam's upcoming documentary. Third precinct is up in flames. We begin with breaking news in South Minneapolis. Caught on tape, a black man pinned to the ground, later dying after a white officer kneeled on his neck. It started with a report of a forgery in progress and ended with Floyd's death. The situation has become volatile in the third police precinct tonight. As police officers and protesters clash over a man's death. Miles from Minneapolis, anger, frustration pouring into the streets of America. I can't breathe! It all stems from this video. What we saw was... <laughs> 
heard on the video saying, I can't breathe. Police officers involved have all been terminated. So much in there to unpack, Miriam. So many questions unanswered. Uh, a lot to do with the drugs that, that were, you know, on the scene, in the bodies. Uh, can you help piece together what we just witnessed? Yes, I have uh, uncovered a cover-up inside of Cup Foods, and it started by asking who made the 911 call. I bet you don't know because it was specifically left from the narrative to hide some shenanigans. In regards to the drugs, the fact that the prosecution, the state tried so hard to make sure that it was not even a factor. And in fact, after bullying, coercing, pressuring Andrew Baker, the medical examiner, it is no longer a consideration in his death. Instead, it's just police brutality and a neck restraint technique that was used and part of a training manual. I would argue today in 2022 that everything is a drill, an exercise. You can look to uh, Billy Boy Gates's latest book, How to Avoid the <laughs> Next Pandemic, and chapter seven is called Practice, Practice, Practice. Certainly after all of these events, all these roundtable exercises, we can acknowledge that they this is all Hegelian. They create an event or they poach an event to advance their agenda, which is stripping our rights and ushering in the color revolution, which is aka communism. Yeah, that's we have to remember what happened, what, what his name was used for in the following months. Uh, certainly riots all over the country. It's just unprecedented. In my lifetime, I've never seen anything like it, that type of orchestrated violence, um, all in his name, all, all in the name of George Floyd, when we still don't know exactly what happened that day. Um, well, I saw, I saw in, the, in the trailer there, uh, a Mr. Adam was mentioned and, and you were asking the question, you know, who is Mr. Adam? And then uh, it was saying that, that he probably OD'd. So um, 
what what did you find out? Not just the cover up, the fact that they're they're scrubbing things, that they're they're leaving things out, they're they're pressuring uh, the examiner to to say a certain narrative. Besides all of that, what were some right. of the facts that you discovered that started to you started to piece together this money laundering scheme? Yeah, I wanna I wanna preface by saying in these false flags. It's compartmentalized. So what you have are useful idiots. You have participants like a lot of rookies because we're testing things, we're doing a drill. And these participants might not acknowledge or realize the bigger picture because they are biased by their own experiences, aka Maurice Lester Hall is holding wads of money, was there earlier that day and purchased an iPad. Someone in Cup Food says that he used fake money, yet Maurice says that he was given the money, he had $7,000 of cash, and that he knows what real money is. Now, I even applied for a FOIA memorandum from the Secret Service to understand more about these fake bills, and the memorandum doesn't even venture to hint the source. So we have to remember that in January, as we were locking down in Wuhan, the State Department of Minnesota intercepted some accounts are 800,000, some accounts are 900,000 of $1 fake bills from China, just like a lot of these chemical precursors are made in China and facilitated by the Mexican cartel. So. Along my investigation, you know, like interviewing Kathy O'Brien about MK Ultra to understand possibly was Derek activated um, after learning that he spent a lot of time in military police. Well, what was he doing in military police? What was he doing working for two clubs that have ties to the Mexican cartel? Is it just an accident that all these properties along Lake Street with a lot of the supposed legitimate businesses were running to launder money. And of course, they all had to shut down because they were not essential under a lockdown. And that put a dent in things. And could it have been that George was out of work, getting uh, using some fake money? Is it even possible that he took those drugs to facilitate a self-sacrifice after learning, for instance, that the Floyd family that raised $27 million in a civil suit, the largest of its kind, plus at least $14 million from the crooked company GoFundMe, that they never once met with Maurice Lester Hall. So I agree with Maurice. Wouldn't you want to meet the person that spent the last hours that had, if you even listen to George's script or what he says, you know, we're going to make you Rodney 2.0. Just keep on saying, I can't breathe, knowing that at one point it would become real. Was he beholden to the Mexican cartel? Was he a pawn? Was he sacrificed? Did the family sacrifice him? I do not pretend to have all the answers, but I've certainly uncovered a lots, lots of things, like who made the 911 call, who is an in possible informant inside of Cup Foods? What was Maurice's role in all of this? It's, it is really a multi-layered psyop. Absolutely. And you told me before the show that you just discovered that Derek Chauvin was at Fort Benning, is that it? And known as the Assassin uh, Training Center? So 
I'm on the chapter for Derek and in reconstructing or looking to see if anyone can stand for this person, no one can. The government itself put out a 79-page personnel file. Is that common? In my 25-plus years as a journalist, I've never come across a government-issued personnel file, and no one could stand for him. But he was he won many awards, and he served in Germany at a combat training center that was teaching force-on-force exercises, which is basically simulations and how to deal with the unexpected. And then he also served in Fort Benning, which is AKA the School of Assassins. He was there in 2004. No one explores what he was doing there. He left his job as a police officer and left his uh, side jobs for the uh, club to go and serve eight months there. So I would even argue to say that this was a duty to intervene exercise. And again, not all of the participants know. This federal trial that just occurred that most people don't even know about where the three officers were tried and found guilty of not doing enough as we usher in this minority report policing where it's justice via via camera, these guys were found guilty. A, a lot of them, two of them were rookies and they interviewed, it was like the police manual was under the stand. They were faulting the officers for training, for following an, an inconsistent um, manual. For instance, they say you have to defer to your field training officer, your FTO. Now they were expected to push Derek out of the way and take over. So it it was not if so people believe would have been behind yeah. that type of simulation. Uh, if you're suggesting that some people thought this was an exercise, uh, can you explain that? it would be it would be homeland security whenever you see a multi-jurisdictional agencies at an event when in reality a local event just will involve a local you know the the MPD not the BCA not the secret service the FBI that were there on the scene till 5 in the morning and all of that to never venture to to look at where the drugs came from. Now, also the the ideas they practice a year in, in advance. Is it just another coincidence that in May 2019, George Perry Floyd was caught and swallowed this time OxyContin from the Mexican made by the Mexican cartel and did his his uh, song and dance? So if they said keep do that again. Do that again, George, and keep saying, I can't breathe. Like, is it normal if you put yourself on in that position to say, I'm through, I'm through. Say, Reese, I love you. Like, do you know that you're going to, to die? If you were to put the lens of this was planned and it's like Reno 911, it's it's half real, half, half orchestrated. And we just saw what happened in Uvalde. Obviously, mistakes mistakes happen. Almost like an actor was stuck in, in a scene of reality that they couldn't get out of. Um, we're going to take a quick break. I want to dig into this a little bit deeper with you, Miriam. Thank you. Government-induced inflation, taxes, rising interest rates, and political instability, they all have a crushing effect on our investments, often causing the stock market to go down. They can also cause gold and silver to go up. 
There's a time to be in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, and there's a time to get out. This is the time to hold gold and silver. Kirk Elliott, double PhD, has been protecting individual Americans' assets for more than two decades. Hi, I'm Kirk Elliott. There is no such thing as a bad investment. There is only bad timing for investments. And now is the time to own gold and silver. Now is the time to own physical metals in an IRA, a 401k, and of course, outside of a retirement plan. Don't let the government destroy your hard-earned assets. Please call 720-605-3900. 720-605-3900 for gold, silver, and undeniable economic protection against out-of-control government. talking to Miriam Hinane, the investigative journalist who's looking into the George Floyd event. So what were some of the things that George said or that other people at the scene said that were things that normal people who were in a regular um, event wouldn't necessarily say that it seemed scripted to you? So for instance, saying, um, saying mama, Mama, um, I'm through. He at one point asks for water. So would you imagine if you were arrested, regardless, um, recently, Daryl Davis, who was um, who is a black man who's helped mediate with the KKK and uh, bridge the gap of racism, was on Tim Poole saying that black men are given the talk. And then Tim was saying, arguing that everyone's given that talk. You know to put your hands on the wheel and to not resist, right? So initially um, he is triggered by a semi-automatic gun put it put in his face by Tom Thomas Lane. At one point, George Floyd says, I think I need some water. And I joke and I say, would you like menu and order some some food? Could you imagine yourself? I cannot imagine saying I need some water. You are being arrested and you need to comply, but instead there's a resistance which they specifically purposely Keith Ellison made sure not to drop that footage till four months later. Also, if you look at the trailer, I did it three times at around the 135 mark. It's very subtle, but Thou the Asian officer turns around and upon cue, all the bystanders walk in unison. And then I'm like, okay, let me look at from his camera. And you can see he does this because he can't talk, but it's kind of like an action. Up until that moment, no one was really paying attention to what was going on. So when you start deconstructing, oh, is it just a coincidence that Darnella Frazier arrives at the 10-minute mark and she's supposedly shielding her nine-year-old niece or cousin from the horrific murder, but yet she's have, she has a grin like a crisis actor. The next day, she's on the scene at 11 o'clock Imagine how quick it moves. The next day at 11 o'clock, she's speaking to the cameras and they're already having a press release. Now, this is Mr. Adam. Mr. Adam, I will reveal his identity, but the fact that they kept him from purview. So yeah, the, the, it's coming up right now. Look, and to play it again, they all move in unison, like action. And then you see it from his you see the the camera from Thao, and you actually see this small little movement with his hand, and it's very subtle. But I have shown it to others, and they're like, "Holy shit! Does anyone else know this?" 
Right. I mean, this is part of the process for you, isn't it? To collect all of the different footage from different angles and try to, to put it together. Uh, and, and you're reliant on a lot of uh, bystanders footage too, right? Yes. I mean, there's, it's interesting in that there is Dragon Walk, there's the milestone camera across the street that was put there because of the shenanigans at Cup Foods and the fact that it's in gangland where the bloods are. There's all the officers, like for instance, I've purchased the footage of Derek Chauvin's body-worn camera that conveniently fell under Squad 320. So it's by looking at you know, that little moment I shared, just watching things over and over again and actually paying attention to something called details. Imagine that. That's where the devil is. And if I could deconstruct this and in earnest want to figure out what are the truth and what are the lies, what I call tries. And so after, for instance, interviewing Maurice Lester Hall, suspecting that he was an informant and then applying for a FOIA and a discovering that for a hot minute he was an informant that stopped cooperating and therefore that's why they kind of resurrected all these charges and are manipulating him and then throwing him under the bus. So I guess his gripe with the Floyd family, it serves me that he was willing to talk to me, even though, you know, I initially thought I was a reporter with the Washington Post and tried to sell me some footage of him and George at Chuck E. Cheese, not knowing that I'm a blackballed journalist and I'm not toting his narrative. But I believe interviewing him that he is truly a victim of racism, of a broken system. He can't get a job. He doesn't want to go back to selling drugs. And the prosecution put him as a as a key witness and then just threw him under the bus. And then he was going to testify for the defense for Derek. And he said, F that I'm not I'm not going to do that. And then pled pled guilty. Sorry, pled the fifth. And then they resurrected a lot of old charges because perhaps he wasn't cooperating. And so he says that he so has seven. This guy, his nickname is, is Reese. And he was on the scene. He was the guy with George Floyd. And you got an exclusive interview with him that no one else, CNN and all of these other companies, couldn't seem to get. And he he told well, you his side of the story, right? Right. Initially, he did do the rounds when he was being propped up by the mainstream, right? So he did Good Morning America. So imagine he's this is a convicted felon with outstanding warrants. So imagine you're, you leave, you escape, you're caught as a fugitive out of state. That was like Jan, June 2nd, 2020. The next day, the charges are dropped, the case is sealed, and you are released. And then the day after that, you are doing Good Morning America. Wow. And uh, that's how we, you know, that's how we treat, just like we gave Darnella Frazier a Pulitzer Prize for her journalism. My journalism on this story alone is award-winning, but yet we're giving a 17-year-old who raised $700,000 on GoFundMe for her Black life, Chris Martin, who took the 20, the boy who called 911, he didn't make money. They threw um, Maurice Lester Hall. I say the Floyd family should give him some money. He was with George, whether they well, like it or not. That's part of said. an investigation is to follow the money, right? And, and the most money that we see publicly is that $27 million and then that other um, chunk of change from GoFundMe that went to the Floyd family. So have you been able to connect them to anything um, related to all this? So 
in my next chapter is on George, where I purchased his all his mugshots, and uh, I've now recently downloaded the civil suit to look at who these uh, the people who are in charge of the uh, estate, if you will, and of course Benjamin Crump, who is a ambulance chasing shyster crook, who's posing as a civil rights attorney when he's on the scene after specifically, let's say, Joel Gilbert in the Trayvon Martin hoax, proving without a shadow of a doubt that this guy committed witness fraud. So if he's putting a completely different person and pretending that she's X person, that means the media is aware because then she did the, the that means the prosecution, the defense is, a, is aware, the family is aware. And so there's a ruse going on. So yes, I will be looking at these players and to see where did that money go? Where did that money go? This is a swindle. This is a grift. There's a lot of money going to his family, that's for sure. And they haven't uh, been wanting to share it with people like his uh, best friend who was there. And how about this seven grand that he had? Do you think it was real? Do you think it was fake? Do you think it was drug money? Um, you know, what are your yeah. theories related to that? It's interesting, right, to admit that he had that money, although you can see it on the security, on the footage. And he says that it's real, that he knows what real money looks like. What I found interesting is that when I interviewed Chris Martin, the boy who took the 20, he had rejected a bill earlier that day from Maurice. And then he accepted this one. He said that the bill that he accepted was hella fake. The, the exhibits that show the bills, they don't look that fake to me. They said that the ink was, was leaking. And so... And Maurice will say that that uh, died when George died, the source of the money. Um, you know, how, how could, if the Secret Service is not even questioning that I know of the source, what are they really covering up? Again, I contend that right. this is a laundering. This is a laundry. Yeah, if you were really investigating this, that would be one of the first things you'd want to know is where did this seven grand come from that was on the scene here? Uh, so you talked about how uh, Derek Chauvin is a real estate agent. He works for has worked for two different clubs associated with the cartels. So what made you think those things, connecting those two things, uh, make it likely that he's part of a money laundering scheme? Well, when you when you see tax evasion, it's often a telltale sign of a laundry operation. You have to have these watching, you know, binge watching Ozark. Um, you have to have these legitimate fronts to clean your money. A lot of them that were not essential, right? And what is he doing? Is it how? First of all, how do you go from being a veteran to working for a uh, club with ties to the Mexican? cartel. So I wanted to see what, what was there any event that I could tie between the Sinaloa, Maya, Santa Maria, and, uh, and, and the club. And there was one case where Derek apprehended someone, intercepted them. And in one reference of a archived 404 article, it mentioned um, gang member. When I applied for the actual case, 
they had redacted the name El Nuevo and under appearance, that's where the tattoos of the person apprehended who came from Mexico, they specifically redacted Sureño 13, which is a tie to the Mexican cartel. So that's a conscious move. The police, which I believe is crooked on the higher echelons, also it's convenient that evidence room was uh, scrubbed. I was told by a police activist of 40 years who has witnessed real police brutality and racism that Derek Chauvin was known as the warlord of Precinct 3. So again, how does a military veteran go from serving, you're supposed to have to respect for veterans, to working with these clubs and accepting cash, and then also having a side gig as a real estate agent? The wife, Kelly Chauvin, had a photo shop where they earned $66,000. Just in fact, this morning before getting on the call, I called Washington County where this tax evasion charges will be tried upcoming in July. And the city, the attorney, Peter Orpit, just died two months ago of abdominal cancer. And I found it interesting that in the article I read, he was 66 years old and he left behind six grandchildren and six great grand, six children and six grand um, grandchildren. So this signature of six 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 and three threes is all over here. So it's just you know what can it prove as far as Freemason symbolism, which goes into you know more conspiratorial, which is in my book. But everything that I say, I'm backing up with actual documents. A lot of it, let's say, when it comes, yeah. Uh, I do want to dig a little deeper into that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back. I want to talk about Derek Chauvin, his upcoming uh, trial and where you see this going in the future as soon as we get back. Did you know that annuities are a great way to protect a portion of your retirement portfolio from downside risk? And unlike CDs and money market accounts, they accumulate tax deferred and can participate in the upside of market indexes and they are probate-free and can provide an income that you can't outlive? With all the different companies, features, indexes, and benefits which annuities offer, it can be confusing choosing which annuity is best for your unique situation. Let a company you can trust help you select an annuity that's right for you. Call the Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. That's the Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. Add an annuity to your retirement portfolio and start enjoying the many benefits that smart investors love. The Cleveland Insurance Group, 844-USA-2024. We're talking to Miriam Hinane about the George Floyd event. And Derek Chauvin, at the center of this saga, what an interesting character. When you start putting together his past, uh, his training, his reputation, his nickname of the, the warlord of that precinct, and he was painted by the media as this kind of white supremacist. Uh, kind of, it, it reminded me of the O.J. Simpson trial when there was the white cop who, who was just like his, he was racist and evil, and he was the real uh, villain in the story. Uh, and then interesting that Revolver actually tried to paint him as the white knight, the guy who was just following the rules, and he he got uh, the short end of the stick. So you're digging really really deep into this to find out who he is. <laughs> 
What's his personality profile? What kind of businesses was he running and, and what was really going on? So can you, can you comment on, on Derek Chauvin, what you learned about this guy? So I set out to interview Carolyn or Michael, his parents. And uh, when I made the, the trailer, the trailer that was, you saw that was gaining traction on YouTube, it was up for seven months and in the past uh, couple of weeks, leading up to the anniversary, then they, they, they removed it. So someone who has a give, send, go, who's raising money for Derek's appeal, saw the trailer and uh, showed a segment that they had never seen where this boy who is a relative, an employee of Cup Food says he's, he was high off his cracker, he probably OD'd. And so I started speaking to her and she said that the mother would not, uh, would not speak to me. And I said, well, she doesn't have to speak to me. I'll speak to her because I have a lot of information. And then they, she blocked me. I have been in communication with the attorney for Derek's appeal. And when he saw the trailer, he's like, wow, this is really good. I want to see the rest. And I'm like, I want to see the rest too, but I'm having a really difficult time just raising $15,000 to pay an editor and cover my costs. So the only person that would go on record was his military officer in Havenfall, Germany. And uh, he told me that Derek was 19. But when I did the math, Derek would have been 23. And then he said that he recognized him from his walk. And so I wondered, when did you see Derek walk? The only footage of Derek walking is from the milestone camera across. Little things like when I'm speaking to Maurice and he says, you know, if I was at, at, the, at the scene, it would have been a different script. Or at one point, Derek says, takes a lot of oxygen to talk. And people don't know that he... Alexander Kang, the black officer rookie who's with him, laughs because a week or a few days before they were at a scene or in a hospital and a nurse said, takes a lot of oxygen to talk. And Derek says, I'm going to use that line. And then he uses that line. There's lines. So if you think of also going from virus to violence, we were getting sick of the lockdowns and then they justified due to the peaceful protests slash really riots that that erupted and no one is wearing any masks on the scene and literally the next day as people are screaming i can't breathe they have ushered in mask mandates where i wear my face diaper for five seconds and what comes to mind i can't effing breathe so is that just you know and then and then learning like oh that was a slogan that was used with Eric Garner where he also said I can't breathe 11 times and was also represented by Benjamin Crump all of these are supposed coincidences so I just want to yeah. conclude with this saying this is what makes you think it's a script it's part of a narrative it, it's it's there's so much more than just uh, some kind of organic event that unfolded here and, and you're getting to the bottom of it. Can you explain your goal of raising the funds, where you're doing that and, and what the ultimate product is that you want to create? Right. I I need to pay the editor because he doesn't work for free and that's $5,000. And the, the rest I, I have spent just this I've spent more than $4,000 on um, exhibits. So I purchased recently 200 exhibits from the court, from the Derek Chauvin 
trial, which includes autopsy pictures for people who think that George Floyd is still alive. That's not what what I um, believe. And and so it, it's to produce this, I'm, I'm looking for, it was very difficult to score a publisher despite being an excellent writer and journalist and veteran reporter for 25 years and, and also with an award-winning film under my belt. It, it's been very difficult raising these funds and, and having um, finding collaborators who have the courage. I understand there's fatigue, but there's 3,000 bills, legislation that have been put into motion because of George Floyd, such as altering the duty to intervene. This is not over. There's a trial around the corner. They're trying to get the cameras back into the trial. This was viewed, the Derek Chauvin trial was viewed by 23 million people. And as we see on the um, you know heels of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard, there is a thirst for this new court TV where we're banking on justice on camera angles. And, and I would argue we're, we are ushering in a minority report. All the good officers have left. Homicide rates have doubled. And um, we're, we're going to have robocops in the future. It's part of the surveillance. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I hope that you're able to get all of that into the documentary. Where, where can people go to, to learn more about your work and, and to donate? So I have uh, the givesendgo.com, Miriam Hinane, and also certain donation. You could get an advanced copy of the book when it's out. And I also have georgefloydreview.org, where I have my interviews and, you know, in a gallery of, of images. So far, I'm still building, building that. And I hope that the book will come out by September the, um, as I said, the state trial for one of the officers has pled guilty. One of the officers that literally did chest compressions on, uh, on um, George. So yes, you could, and I can go to activist post. I just uh, published an article on the um, juicy tidbits in the Maurice Lester Hall. And, and, and just to say, I, I think that I'm, I called him at, at the right time that he has a gripe with the system and and found a connection i haven't heard from him since our interview and I, i'm i'm hoping to reconnect with him yes uh, thank you for finding him and doing that interview it gives us a little bit more information to put the pieces of the puzzle together as Miriam main doing great investigative work we're gonna take a quick break when we get back we'll talk to dr Hyder about use of ivermectin for vaccine side effects as soon as we get back
Joining us is Dr. Syed Haider, who has risked his medical license to tell the truth about ivermectin. Let's take a look at this clip of him speaking at the Reawaken America tour. In the last 15 months, I've treated over 5,000 elderly COVID-19 patients. If I had followed official guidance, telling my patients to just stay home and do nothing until they couldn't breathe, I would have seen more than 300 hospitalizations and at least five deaths. I did not send them home to do nothing. Instead, I gave them safe protocols, including off-label meds like ivermectin. Instead of 300, instead of 300, I only had five hospitalized. And instead of five or more lives lost, by the grace of God, no one died. We had a deal, no clapping. <laughs> um, I initially urged extreme caution with vaccines, and later, when their true dangers became abundantly clear, I warned against them. The response I got for these efforts was unexpected and frankly unprecedented in living memory. The American Medical Association warned me and every other doctor in America not to use life-saving ivermectin. The Federation of State Medical Boards warned us not to spread misinformation about vaccines as it would put our licenses in jeopardy. I saw doctors fired just for saying we should ensure informed consent. I saw doctors have their licenses suspended and even revoked for warning about the side effects and deaths that were there for all to see in VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Physician colleagues I spoke with refused to even look at the data on off-label meds or scratch beneath the surface of the flip-flopping official recommendations. Pharmacists threatened to report me. Insurance companies did report me. Five state medical boards attacked me. One of them claimed, unironically, that by prescribing off-label, I had run unauthorized experiments on my patients. Even though they knew very well that off-label prescriptions account for 40% of day-to-day -day medical practice and are not experimental, unlike the very injections they were pushing. Wow, very powerful statement. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hyder. Tell us about this proposed bill in California that you've been speaking out against. Yeah, so there's a bill that's on the Senate floor now, actually, and it looks like it's going to pass because there's not really a lot of, there's not enough opposition from the Republican Party in California, and the Democrats are certainly for this. So anyway, I think it's Bill, you know, AB, Assembly Bill 2098, and it's a really dangerous bill because it basically um, says that the California Medical Board can, um, you know, attack the license of a doctor for speaking against the, um, basically speaking out against the mainstream narrative on COVID-19. So whether that's about vaccines or whether it's about masking or any kind of mandates or, you know, social distancing or lockdowns or importantly, you know, treatments, you know, off-label treatments. Um, so, so all of these things, there is um, a significant portion, I would say it may even be split 50-50 or, or you know, some large percentage of physicians in this country and a large percentage of patients um, don't follow the official guidance and they don't believe in it, right? They, they truly believe based on their interpretation of the data, like myself, that off-label prescribing is very effective for COVID-19. And this, we're basing it on data, right? And, um, and we, we believe that data shows that vaccines are dangerous. Um, the initial form of the bill, the, it was going to, um, you know, basically uh, go after doctors who even spoke in public on like Twitter just to like random followers. Uh, they changed it a little bit so that uh, it's it only applies to physicians who are speaking to their patients, whether one-on-one -on -one with patients or whether in a newsletter um, or whether in like a private Facebook group. But if you're speaking to your patients and you tell them something that's not part of the official narrative, uh, the California and the California Medical Board learns about that, they could basically um, 
you know, attack your license, maybe revoke your license. And, and, and so th this is a real, real strong attack against freedom of speech for physicians. And, and at the heart, heart of this bill, in the, in the very beginning of the bill, it basically elevates the FDA and the CDC to kind of like a position of, you know, these are the truth tellers in science. These are the, you know, the final arbiters of truth for science, kind of like Dr. Fauci is the truth. Now, you know, the, the assembly bill, you know, in the beginning, first few paragraphs, basically says, okay, since the FDA has said that vaccines are safe and effective, they are, right? And since the CDC says that, you know, whatever, you know, so many people have died from COVID-19, we believe that that's the truth. Um, and so it leaves no room for the fact that science constantly shifts and changes, right? Um, so, so it's kind of like the Spanish Inquisition again, you know, all over again. Um, you know, we're going after Galileo again. We're going after, you know, the people who have an opposing opinion. And even if we're not right, just you have to allow opposing opinions, opinions in science because you never really know if you've gotten to the ultimate truth or not, you know, especially with the vaccines. We're in the middle of the experimental vaccines. They, they, um, they, the experiment's not over, right? So the experiment is continuing and, and it won't be over until, you know, for most of these trials, 2023, yeah. some of them now pushed back to 2024. Um, so, so even the truth of the, about the vaccines is kind of in flux. You don't know the long-term safety data, you know? So you can't say that, you know, you can't enshrine it in law that vaccines are safe and effective. And if anyone says anything otherwise, we can, you know, take them up, you know, in front of the medical board and strip them of their medical license. I mean, it just flies in the face of reason, right? Um, what if these things change? Yeah. You know, these aren't self-evident truths, right? That vaccines are safe and effective and that yeah. certain drugs do and don't to work me for COVID. They did actually show their, their future agenda by saying that they want to censor social media speech from physicians. So we know that if they win this bill, then the next bill that they want to pass is one to censor physicians' ability to even speak in the public square about these types of uh, treatments and so forth. So um, what do you think that type of uh, attempt to silence and muzzle does to the medical community? How does it make, how does it change uh, doctors' behaviors? So it's already changed doctors' behaviors just because people have seen other doctors lose their license in the United States, okay? In Maine, it happened. It happened in Hawaii where a doctor was attacked, you know, and they tried to strip their medical license. But I know for sure it happened to a famous physician in Maine. She lost her license. Um, and so so we've already seen, and people have lost their jobs for speaking about out against vaccines, as I said in that clip um, at the conference. Um, so, so doctors have been marginalized. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their livelihoods. They've had to go and you know start up you know their own practices because they can't work for hospitals anymore. So so people physicians there's already been a chilling effect on speech for for all medical professionals. Okay, so people are self censoring already. And I mean I've spoken myself personally to colleagues who tell me that I will not tell a patient what I truly believe about these vaccines. I'll just tell them that you know all I can do is uh, you know refer you to the CDC or the FDA website because that's all I'm allowed to say. I'm not allowed to tell you anything else, you know, because we've already gotten letters, like I said in that clip, from the Federation of State Medical Boards warning us, right, that if you do this, your license may be at risk, right? It's a warning. And, and now that risk is being kind of enshrined in law in California. It's going to be a law for the medical board. And, and the problem here is that the medical board, they're political appointees to the medical board, right? And, and the same at the FDA. A lot of them are political appointees. These are not like 
you know, it's not like a democratic process. It's not, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of climate science, right? Like this, you know, old canard that like 97% of climate scientists agree. I mean, they agree on something, but not what you've been told, right? Like to get 97% of you know, any group of humans to agree on something is pretty difficult. There's no way that there's a consensus in medicine on COVID-19 right now. There's a consensus at the FDA and the CDC. These are tiny little groups of political appointees, often with tremendous bias, right? They, they, most of them, if not all of them, are on the boards of pharmaceutical companies or they, uh, you know, their research is funded by pharmaceutical companies. Um, so so this, this, process, this entire process of trying to, you know, legislate the truth about medicine is way off. You just can't do it. You can't legislate science. You can't say that science is what we say it is, right? That's a religion. That, that's not science. That's not what we believe in in this country and, you know, in the modern world. You can't, you can't just enshrine things in legislation. Patients... Uh, it's not what patients want to go to a doctor and be given some type of script about uh, what the CDC thinks instead of the honest opinion of the healthcare professional that they're they're paying to see. Uh, you know, we really pay to get their their true analysis. What they believe will not harm the patient and will actually help the patient. So it really does have to do with that that oath to uh, not to harm, which is <laughs> kind of the basis of the whole profession, isn't it? Uh, any, any comment on that? And then can you tell us about your practice now and what you're seeing uh, going around, what treatments are working, which treatments aren't, uh, you know, how many patients are you seeing, what geographic regions? Yeah, so I, I just want to mention that there's a long-term plan here, and the plan is to replace human beings in you know most fields with robots and with artificial intelligence, right? Because robots and AI are easy to control. You know, you can program the AI just to say what you want it to say and not say anything else. So that's the long-term plan, even in medicine, right? Like you can come up with algorithms, and eventually there will be AI. Maybe it's five or ten or twenty years out. Whenever it is, it is coming. Right. And it's coming for medicine. It's coming for doctors. It's coming for surgeons. It's coming for engineers. It's coming for for most of the you know knowledge work that we do. Um, AI is coming for it. And, and the reason it's being pushed so hard and being welcomed, you know, is because you can make so much money off of it. You know, it's kind of like slave labor, but also because it's controllable. And so we need to you know, some people will always want to talk to human beings and we can't legislate away the freedom of speech of human beings. Right. We have to hold the line on freedom of speech. Um, and, and the next thing that, you know, to get to the, the second part of your question about, you know, what I've been treating, ivermectin, you know, works like a charm for a lot of people, whether it's long COVID, acute COVID, prevention of COVID, or vaccine injuries, right? And I mean, I'm seeing a lot of them. At this point, probably over a thousand long haulers and vaccine injured patients have come through my practice. And they're coming from all over the United States, right? I mean, I'm still licensed in a lot of, a lot of these states. They have, you know, they had emergency licenses. Some of them have expired, some of them haven't. So I'm still seeing patients from all over the United States. And I mean, there's no specific region that has more than others. And, um, and, and the, unfortunately, the vaccine injured are a little bit harder to treat. Um, they still have great results, but they have to be, you know, oftentimes a little bit more patient. Sometimes we have to use secondary medications like fluvoxamine, um, sometimes hydroxychloroquine. I mean, there's there's so many different avenues, you know, low-dose steroids, um, sometimes nicotine. Some people have started reporting that nicotine gum actually helps, two milligrams twice a day. Um, Brian Artis has been talking about this, and he says that so far 500 people have gotten in touch with him and told him that, you know, nothing else worked, and I tried nicotine and you know my hearing came back or my shortness of breath went away or you know all kinds of things have cleared up 
And so, so we're, you know, we're constantly trying to push the envelope and find new treatments and find new things that work. You know, some people do ozone therapy or hyperbaric oxygen. And, and sometimes it's like a specific thing that works for one person and it doesn't really work for everyone else. But if you work with a doctor, um, who is using these off-label protocols, usually you can get 85, 90% better or even 100% better, right? In, in some cases, you just have to be patient with it and stick with them and try different things out. Um, but, the, but there are protocols. The FLCCC has published protocols um, and doctors like myself have kind of tweaked them and, and advanced them a little bit for some of our patients. Um, but, but there is hope. And I think that this is really important that people need to spread the word that there is hope for these um, you know, oftentimes what feels like a life ending or a career ending, you know, um, injury from a vaccine. And the other thing that's really important is to just increase awareness about what it is, because a lot of people who come to me, it took them a really long time to figure out that they even were vaccine injured, right? They, they knew that there was a change in their health and they went to their doctor and they were trying to figure it out. And there was these blinders, right? Like there's just like no one yeah, thinks they're about not going to hear that from most of the doctors, right? I mean, even if yeah, they think yeah. that's a possibility, they might self-censor themselves and, and not mention that as a possibility. Uh, so people can go to my go-to doc to learn more about your work. Thank you for joining us today and giving us an update. I'm going to take a quick break and I'll give you my final thoughts. I'm Clay Clark and I'm not an inventor. And this is Bob. My name is Bob Healy and I'm the inventor of the Grill Blazer Grill Gun. Gentlemen, let me introduce you to the Grill Gun. Oh! I would have greened that anyway. I need that! Yes! So Bob, how does your equation work? Okay, now hang on. It's a fairly sophisticated equation. You have a grill gun. It creates fire. Fire plus grilling equals America. Push it down and... Yeah. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. Check it out! <laughs> fire plus grilling equals America. Greg Phillips of True the Vote is an election intelligence specialist who was behind the 2000 Mules documentary. He recently went on Patel Patriot's podcast and implied that something very big is coming, something even bigger than 2000 Mules. Let's take a look. A few issues coming up that are more explosive than the mules that are no 10x um, more likely to, to divide this country even further. Um, Catherine and I spend a lot of time every single day, really not just praying through it, but thinking through how do we actually do this? Because once mm -hmm. these come out, there's one in particular, it's a, it's a multinational deal. It involves billions of dollars. There's ir irrefutable evidence. Um, we've been involved in a major counterintelligence operation that's very mature in this country involving federal agencies and us. Um, and there's been some betrayals along the way. There have been some issues along the way. Uh, but once we get to the point where this is ready to go, it's going to make everybody forget everything about the mules. And wow. it's going to bring into question everything we think we know about these elections. Everything. I can say that. That's unreal. 
What is interesting is that Greg Phillips chose Patel Patriots platform to release this information. You know, it really implies that Patel Patriot is over the target with his devolution research. I mean, he could have done that type of interview on Tucker Carlson uh, or, or some kind of famous mainstream, but he chose a you know not so well-known, fairly new to the scene guy who has a, a theory about devolution. But he didn't just drop this information on that podcast. He actually put it on public record in Arizona during a legislative session. So he says it's going to be about six weeks before this stuff comes to light, but we will be reporting on it. That is for sure. Well, on the tales of the disappointing verdict that a bunch of D.C. liberals on a jury found Clinton lawyer Sussman not guilty, Tucker Carlson interviewed Matt Gates about a very interesting workplace situation. Let's take a look. Clinton donors acquitted a lawyer called Michael Sussman of lying to the FBI. Now, who's Michael Sussman? Sussman is a former partner at the law firm Perkins Coy, the biggest Democratic firm, the firm that represented Hillary Clinton's campaign. And in that capacity at Perkins Coy, Sussman laundered false information about the Trump campaign to the FBI. So a pretty tight relationship between Sussman and the FBI. We're learning tonight much more about the connection between the FBI and Sussman's former law firm, Perkins Coy. Congressman Matt Gates and Jim Jordan have just received a letter from Perkins Coy's attorneys. This show can report exclusively that in that letter, Perkins Coy admits the FBI has maintained a, quote, secure work environment within Perkins Coy offices for more than a decade, going back to 2012. What? According to the letter, quote, Perkins Coy is responsible to the FBI for maintaining the secure work environment. That workspace, whatever it is, is still in operation today. Ever heard of anything like this? No one we spoke to has. Matt Gates is the man who found this. He's a horseman. Isn't that interesting? And you know who was in charge of that workspace? It was actually Sussman himself, the guy that just got found not guilty by those DC liberal jury members. Uh, but very interesting timing that this came out on Tucker right after that finding. I believe that John Durham has bigger fish to fry and we have all the goods. Really looking forward to that next indictment. Thank you for watching American Media Periscope. We are America's Patriot-only network. Making Sense of the Madness is Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for watching. God bless all you patriots. Good night.